Can I invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to that wonderful book of Romans. As mentioned before, the, the title of Carl's message is God's Will and Ours, which I think is a very intriguing subject. It's very often discussed, especially at my place. And uh, so we are looking forward to have this um, passage preached in a way that would help us to think through um, what it is God's sovereign will is. So um, it's Romans chapter 9, and we'll read uh, the first 29 verses. The word of God where it says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all. Forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abram's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abram's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by her father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's promise in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. But one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For, who's, for who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? 
Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Can I invite Carl to come forward and make that clear to us? I have to uh, <clears throat> say I was a little bit confused before Steve. Um, Steve's talking about someone coming here, one person coming here with great excitement and joy. And I was sitting there and I thought to myself, he must be talking about... Oh, that's just me. Feel good? Yeah, okay. And I thought, he must be talking about me because the Eagles won yesterday because he was looking sort of right at me. <laughs> and then he said, and David's been, you know... Announced as cancer-free, and I thought, well, that just puts the Eagles' victory into a kind of disappointing perspective, doesn't it? Really, you know. Anyway, great news, brother. Uh, let's uh, let's pray, and then we'll think about this uh, this difficult passage. Uh, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that uh, you're a good God and a loving God. Uh, And Lord, we know that because you sent the Lord Jesus into the world to save sinners. Uh, But Lord, we also know that you're a sovereign God who rules over all things. And Lord, as we think about that this morning, help us to understand who you are and to hold the uh, nature of who you are, those those things are in our minds that we might understand you more deeply, that we might love you more deeply, that we might trust you more fully. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, as we uh, think about this passage this morning, one of the books that's been particularly helpful I've found over the years is Chosen for Life, um, The Case for Divine Election by Sam Storm. Sam Storm is a very interesting kind of character, um, but he's written perhaps one of the most excellent books on this whole topic. So if you want to dig into that a bit more, I recommend that. Uh, And in his book, at the beginning, Sam Storms gives the kind of the fictional example of twin brothers, Jerry and Ed. Jerry and Ed are raised by loving Christian parents. They attend the same school and they attend the same church. 
They're almost equal in every respect, in character, in personality, in sporting and academic ability. They also both show no interest in anything religious. Uh, Week after week, they sit up the back of the church, not listening to the preacher uh, and being bored or rude. But then one Easter Sunday, uh, much to his own surprise, Jerry finds himself listening to the sermon while his brother Ed just keeps kind of mucking around. Sam Storms writes, Both brothers had heard countless sermons depicting their sinful and desperate spiritual condition, together with the promise of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. But not until Easter Sunday did either of them pay any attention. Ideas and doctrines that had until then sounded silly and archaic mysteriously began to make sense to Jerry. The existence of an infinitely... Uh, holy God, against whom he had rebelled, together with the prospect of eternal death, shattered all his remaining tranquility of soul. He glanced briefly at Ed to see whether he was paying attention. Not a chance. Jerry struggled to explain what was happening. All he knew was that while he was listening to what he had heard so many times before, he heard it for the very first time. What Jerry now found altogether lovely, Ed continued to loathe. Jerry's unbelief disappeared under a flood of repentance and whole-souled love for Christ. By an act of will, Jerry embraced the redemptive sufferings of Jesus and his only hope and haven, as his only hope and haven. But Jerry, uh, but Ed, sorry, remained obstinate and now even more indignant in his unbelief. Um, so there's these two brothers, there's Ari and, uh, Ari and Jed. Jed and... <laughs> Jerry and Ed. Uh, Jerry and Ed, they've both heard the same things. Uh, they've both uh, had the same experiences, but on one day, uh, Jerry decides to listen and Ed doesn't. Jerry hears the gospel and receives it and Ed doesn't. And the question is what's the difference between those two brothers? Why did that happen? Uh, why did one turn to Jesus but not the other? Uh, They had the same advantages, the same benefits, they heard the same good news, but one turned to Jesus and the other didn't. And really that question, why why the difference? That question lies at the heart of what Paul is addressing uh, here in Romans chapter 9. At the heart of uh, this chapter is that question, if God has this great gospel plan, then what are we to make of the fact that not everybody is saved? God has this great gospel plan... uh, And if he has that plan, what are we to make of the fact that not everyone uh, will be saved? So that's what we want to dig into this morning. Uh, I'm going to have a time for questions at the end because it's a difficult difficult topic. So if you have any questions, there'll be time to ask those at the end. But it's important as we come to terms with this passage to understand that what Paul says here flows out of what he's just been talking about in chapter 8. For chapters, Paul's been unfolding and explaining God's great work in Jesus Christ Uh, That although we're dead in sin and we're locked up in rebellion against God, God sent his own son Jesus to take the condemnation that we deserved and then to rise from the dead so that we can share in his life. So that now if we belong to Jesus, we've been set free from sin, we've been set free to know and to love God, we've been adopted into God's family and one day Jesus will return to claim all his people and to make them fully like himself in a world put right. That's the gospel that Paul has been unpacking. But having unfinished 
that uh, unpacking that great gospel work of God and Jesus, Paul now moves on to re- reflect on his deep sorrow that some people have missed out on that. Here's the great gospel, and Paul thinks about the situation in the world, and he says, but here are people who have not heard, who, who, are, who have not believed. He says in verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul has this deep and this unceasing sorrow in his heart. His sorrow uh, is for his own race, the people of Israel. At one level, Paul's sorrow and his grief is because they're his people. They're his uh, kind of brothers and sisters by race. They're the people of Israel. But at another level, his grief is because of the great privileges that they'd had. He says in verse 4, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory. There's the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. There's are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah who is God over all forever. Uh, be praised. Amen. Paul lists the great privileges that God had given to the people of Israel. God had chosen that nation, that people, as the instrument through which blessing would come to the world. The blessing which came from them was the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It was through Jesus, that promised Messiah, that God was working uh, to make him, uh, to, to redeem a people for himself. But through the people of Israel, God had made himself and his promises and his glory known. The people of Israel had had front row seats to what God was doing to save a people for himself. They'd had front row seats, but they hadn't embraced God's Messiah, Jesus, when he finally arrived. They'd had the promises about Jesus, but Jesus had turned up and they just ignored him. They rejected him. They crucified him. They had front row seats, but they abandoned the gospel. And that grieved Paul deeply. It's astonishing, uh, really, if you think about it, that Paul gets to the end of a great, one of the great descriptions, one of the great kind of uh, elucidations, one of the great kind of um, explanations of of the gospel. He gets to the end of that. And whereas we might be tempted to reflect on what that means for us, Paul reflects on what that means for those who've rejected the gospel. Yeah, sure, he's reflected on the security that we have in Christ at the end of chapter 8. But here is almost the other side of that. As he reflects on what God has done for him, he also reflects on all those who have not received the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks about deep sorrow and unceasing anguish. It's not just something that bothers him sort of once in a while, but something that is in his heart and mind constantly. And he can even go so far as to say that he wishes that he himself was cut off if somehow they could be saved. Uh, In the Old Testament, Moses says something pretty similar. He he says in Exodus 32, verse 31, Moses says to God, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves themselves gods of gold but now please forgive their sin 
But if not, then blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses is doing the same thing here that Paul is doing. He's saying, I could almost wish that I was cut off so that they could be saved. That might seem like an extraordinary desire. But actually what Paul and Moses are reflecting is really, I think, just the the love of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't just wish that he would be cursed to save his people. He was actually cursed, cut off. He was cut off from God. He suffered the curse of the judgment that we deserved in order that everyone who entrusts themselves to him might be spared from that, might be spared from being cursed. What Paul is showing to us here is that he shares the same heart as Jesus. Now, you and I can't save anyone by being cut off ourselves. Um, That was Jesus' mission. We can't share in his mission. We can't accomplish what he accomplished. But we can share his love, I think. That's what Paul shows. Paul shows that we can share his love. Paul had that love. Moses had that kind of love. And some of you here might have experienced that kind of deep love for somebody else. Uh, Maybe it was one of your children. Uh, Maybe it was a close friend and you could almost have wished as you prayed for their salvation, you could almost have wished that if it would take you being cut off yourself from God, you could almost wish, you'd almost be willing to do that, that they might be saved. Some people here will know that deep love for the lost. But you know what's really extraordinary I think about what Paul says here and what Moses says as well in the Old Testament is that they are not simply talking about their close friends and family. Their love goes beyond the bounds of their friendship and family groups. Their love extends to a whole nation, to a whole people. Jesus' love extended beyond his 12 disciples to people who were his enemies. I think the love that Paul shows here and the love that Jesus showed on the cross is deeply, deeply confronting, actually. It's scary, I think, to th- to consider what it might look like to have that kind of deep love, that kind of costly love. It's scary to think of loving people that much, to think of loving strangers that much. Uh, It's scary to think of what it will cost us to love people like that, in that way. But if we are to reflect Jesus in everything, then we need also to reflect Jesus in this. And it's not, you know, it's. And if we are to reflect Jesus in everything, and if this is at the at the heart of who Jesus is, then it's not enough for us to just say, just to put shrug our shoulders and say, "Well, I don't have that love. That's okay." No, if we, if this is the love that Jesus had, and if we're called to to follow Jesus in everything, then this is the love that we need to have. In fact, it's a grave sin for us not to love 
as deeply as Christ loved, as deeply as Paul is loving here in this chapter. We need to repent of that. It's not enough for us just to turn up at church every week to be fed ourselves with the scripture and then to go out into, into a world where people are going to a Christless eternity and, and to, be, to be unconcerned about that. We need to have the love of Christ, the love of, that Paul had. And the only way that that can happen is if, is if God does something to our hearts. We've got to ask God to put that deep love into our hearts. As I've reflected on that this week, I thought to myself, well, I think we need to commit together, don't we, as a church? I think we need to commit together to praying every day for the next six months at least, every day that God would put that love into our hearts. Praying to do that, committing to, to praying for that on our own, to, to pray for that in our families, with our children, to pray for it in our growth groups, to pray for it in our services together. People are going to hell and Paul loved them so much that he was almost willing to be cut off from God that they might be saved. Jesus was cursed and God wants us to care uh, that much too. So Paul begins by reflecting about, on God's sorrow uh, for those who have not received the, the gospel. But then he goes on to ask another question, and that is, how is that God's plan, how is it that God's plan for Israel seems to have failed? Uh, it, uh, the people of Israel had all these privileges, so how come they didn't receive the good news of Jesus? Uh, that's a particular problem in the light of what Paul is saying at the end of Romans chapter 8. So at the end of chapter 8, Paul was not only reflecting on the good gospel work of God in Jesus, but he was also reflecting on the certainty of what God would do. What God had promised uh, couldn't fail. Nothing could foil God's plan. Um, if you look back at chapter 8, verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul is saying that what uh, God set out to do, he actually has gone on and accomplished. And nothing can, can stop that. Nothing can uh, interrupt that. Paul, uh, but Paul is saying uh, here in, in chapter 9, well, but if God set out to do something in Israel, hasn't that failed because not all Israel has been saved? Didn't God call Israel to be a people for himself? So why have so many people from that nation not received Jesus? Has God's plan and purpose, has God's word failed? And the answer to that implied question Paul gives in verse 6, it's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. At one level, we understand, I think, what Paul is saying. It happens with other things all the time, right? We all understand, we all recognise that not all coffee is coffee. All right? I think we get that, don't we? You go to some coffee shops in town, no, you don't even go there. You don't even walk through the door because you know that not all coffee is coffee. You know that not all online shops are online shops. Some of them are just, are just scams, right? They, they look like an online shop. Uh, they, have, they have products. They have an address. They might even have a business number, but they're just a scam. We get that. We get that not all things that look like they're something are really what they look like. 
And Paul is saying the same thing. It was the same in the Old Testament. Not everyone who belonged to the kind of the visible community of God's people, not all of those people were really the people of God. They might have looked like that on the outside, but actually inside they weren't. Paul gives two examples of that uh, from the Old Testament. The first example he gives uh, is of Isaac and Ishmael. So in the Old Testament, God had chosen Abraham to be the, the father of, um, of many nations, of many people, and Abraham would be the one through whom one of his descendants, uh, God would bring blessing. Uh, but Abraham had two children, uh, Ishmael and Isaac. And although Abraham wanted God to uh, bless, God's blessing to come through Ishmael, his first son, God had decided that the blessing would come through the yet-to-be-born son Isaac. Two sons, uh, Abraham wanted Ishmael to be the one through whom the blessing would come, but, but God had decided that it would be through Isaac. Paul quotes those words of God to Abraham in verse 7, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, it's through Isaac that the blessing will come. Two sons, God had chosen to work through one and not the other. Paul gives a similar example in verse 10. He says that Isaac himself and his wife Rebekah had a pair of twins, but that God had chosen Jacob and not Esau. Now, Paul's point is that throughout the history of God's people, there's always been something going on at a deeper level. Uh, God's word hasn't failed because not everyone who was part of the visible community of God, not everyone who was part of the visible community of God's people were really part of God's great salvation plan. And what was true of Old Testament Israel, the Old Testament community of God's people, what was true of them remains true today. Just as not all Israel was Israel, not all the church is the church. And just like Paul said that some people might uh, have looked at God's plans for Israel and be tempted to think that maybe, maybe God's plans had failed. They looked at Israel and they saw that people had abandoned the gospel. And they, and they were tempted to think, well, God hasn't done what he said. God's great gospel plan for the world has fallen through. It can be tempting in the same way for us to look at the church, at God's plans for the church, to call for himself a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. We can look at God's plans for the church and we can see that so many people are abandoning the gospel. So many people are turning their back on the gospel. So many people who grow up in the church turn away from the gospel. It can be easy to look at that situation to think that God's plans has failed, that God's word has failed, that God's promises have failed. It's so discouraging to see, isn't it, to see people who've had front row seats to what God is doing in Jesus, people who've heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus, people who've given their lives to serving Jesus even, people who've been in ministry, to see those people wander away from the faith. It's so discouraging to look at whole churches and whole denominations, and whole Christian organisations, and whole nations who've had front row seats to what God is doing in the gospel, but who then abandon the gospel, or who become hardened against the gospel. A friend of mine uh, told the story uh, of a school that was set up as a Christian school. Uh, it was set up on Christian principles to, to teach 
the gospel, you know, to, treat, to teach a Christian worldview. And I think it was in, within 20 years that school had a, completely abandoned the gospel. Extraordinary, isn't it? When we look uh, at how people in our society, people who don't know Jesus, respond to our attempts uh, to share the gospel with them, when we look at our, our society apparently being so hard set against God, it's hard for us to know what to think. It's easy for us to begin to believe that God's plans, God's great gospel plan, has failed. Has God's great gospel plan really failed? We might be tempted to think that, but Paul says that's not the case. God's plan hasn't failed because something deeper uh, is at work in God's plan as well. That deeper thing that is at work in God's, uh, is God's sovereign purpose. Uh, The ultimate reason, Paul says, why not all Israel and why not everyone in the church is really a Christian and why not everyone who hears the gospel receives it with joy, uh, the the ultimate reason for that is not just chance, but God's own purposes and plans. That comes out in the example of Jacob and Esau, which Paul has talked about. Paul says in verse 11, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul says that behind the acceptance of Jacob and the rejection of Esau stands God's sovereign choice. God chose uh, Jacob but rejected Esau. And importantly, that choice was not based on any perceived good or evil in either Jacob or Esau. Paul explicitly says that it was before either of them had done anything good or bad. It wasn't based on them, it was based on God's mercy. So verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's up to God. It's God's prerogative to decide where he has mercy and where he doesn't. According to verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort but on God's mercy. Paul gives another example, uh, that of hardening Pharaoh's heart. Verse 17, for scripture says to Pharaoh... I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Behind the salvation of all people stands the unshakable sovereign purposes of God. One of the things we find so hard to understand like Paul is why If God wants all people to be saved, as Paul says in Timothy, why, if God wants all people to be saved, why isn't everyone saved? One answer that's sometimes given is that God values human freedom so much that he's decided not to interfere with people's decisions. That would be a great and simple answer to give. And Paul could easily have done that here in this chapter. He could have said, it's not unjust. 
God values human freedom so much that he has decided not to interfere. It would have, it would have been a great solution. It would have been a great solution to Job's problem as well. It would have shortened the book of Job to about two chapters. The Bible just never says that. But on the flip side, Paul does here give an answer. And it's a difficult answer. His answer is that although God wants everyone to be saved, God does not, in the end, determine to save everyone. The reason that not all Israel was saved was because that was God's plan. The reason that not everyone who sets foot in a church is saved is because that's God's plan. The reason that not every person born into this world is saved is because that's God's plan. We might find that immensely difficult to come to grips with, But on another level, it gives us great confidence, I think, and great encouragement in the face of the kind of world in which we live. So when we preach the gospel and people don't respond, or when uh, when people who have seemed to have been Christians then abandon the gospel, or when our world turns against Jesus, we don't need to panic. We don't need to panic and think, well, God's out of control. We don't need to think that God's word has failed or that God's gospel purposes have failed. They haven't failed. We just need to keep trusting God. And when the people that we know and love don't respond to the gospel or they abandon the gospel, we shouldn't think that it's our fault, that the failure lies with us, that we weren't good enough parents or that we didn't explain the gospel clearly enough or that we didn't try hard enough or that we didn't pray hard enough. We just need to keep trusting that God is working things out according to his plan and purpose. When we pour hours and hours of our time into evangelistic endeavours, when we give ourselves up to love our friends and our family in the hope that they might be saved, and when they aren't, we shouldn't doubt God. We need to trust that he's working out everything according to his good plan and purpose. Notice that trusting God doesn't mean that we don't care about people. It's so important to see that Paul can say in the same breath, I long for these people to be saved and I trust that God is working things out according to his plan. The two things are not contradictory. They're not contradictory for us. They weren't contradictory for Paul. They're not even contradictory for God. God can say, why will you die, O house of Israel? Why won't you turn? Turn and live. Jesus can look out over Jerusalem and say, how I, would, how I long to gather you under my arms like a hen gathers her chicks. The same God who longs for those things to happen is the same God who is working out his perfect plan. So we don't need to worry in our gospel ministry. We need to trust God. But you might worry, well, what if God hasn't chosen me? 
But the solution to that is to cast yourself on the mercy of God. If, uh, if salvation depends on God's mercy and not our desire or effort, then what else can we do but cast ourselves on the mercy of God? We're utterly dependent on God. And Jesus assures us that if we do cast ourselves on the mercy of God, then he won't reject us. Jesus says in John 6.37, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. In other words, don't worry that you'll come to God and he'll say to you, I'm sorry, I'd like to forgive you, but you're not on my list. Don't worry if you're chosen or not. Rather, Jesus says, cast yourself on the mercy of God and know that whoever comes to Jesus will be saved. So Paul grieves uh, over the lostness of his fellow countrymen uh, because he recognises that some of them are not, uh, have not received the gospel. And he recognises that behind that stands the unshakable sovereign purposes of God. Finally, he addresses the issue uh, of justice. He says in verse 19, One of you will say to me, then, why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? And that's exactly the question, isn't it? That is exactly the question that we're left with. If God is in control, if God stands behind all this, how can he blame us? It's important to understand that that question is not just an academic question. Paul's not sitting in his... Uh, in his thinking chair, asking an academic question, philosophical question. It's a protest. How can God do that? How can that be fair? How can that be right? We feel the power of that objection. Well, look at the answer that Paul gives He says in verse 20, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Paul's answer to the question of justice is, Well, doesn't God get to decide what he wants to do? God is God, and you're not. Imagine that you make two casseroles. One casserole you make for your friend's birthday dinner party, and you put a lot of love and care into that casserole. Uh, you, you spend ages making it. You buy all the best quality ingredients that you can get. You get the nice matching wine to go with it. And then you make just another casserole for the regular Monday night dinner. Uh, You're running short on time, so you kind of just slap it together. You grab whatever veggies are left in the bottom drawer of the fridge. Imagine then if the second casserole arcs up and says to you, no, I don't want to be the Monday night dinner. I want to be the family birthday dinner. It doesn't happen, does it? Well, casseroles can't talk, but... 
But it's not the place of the casserole to decide, is it? We've made it for our purposes. Like that. Our purposes and our intents stand behind it. And they're good purposes. And they're good intents. In the same way, who are we to tell God what he should do with us? He's made us, he gets to decide. But in another way, the two casserole example is not quite what's happening in God giving his saving love to some and not to others. Because the objects of God's saving love are not casseroles, but sinners. That is, God's not choosing between two perfectly good and lovely human beings and then deciding that he likes one and I'm just going to send the other one to hell because I can. God doesn't choose one and unjustly punish the other. God has mercy on one and justly condemns the other. All human beings, all of us are on the road to destruction on account of our rejection of God. But God mercifully chooses to redeem some while passing over others and judging them according to what they deserve. God mercifully frees, Augustine said, and justly condemns. God made us. He made us for his purposes and, we deserve, and we've rebelled against him and deserve nothing but judgment. And God doesn't have to show mercy to any of us. But he has chosen for whatever reason to show mercy to some. And he is perfectly at liberty as God to decide who will receive mercy and who will not. Some of us probably find that idea deeply offensive. But that's because I think at the heart of it is the problem that we resent God being in control and not us. We resent the idea that we don't get to control our own destinies at some level. The most fundamental cry of our sinful hearts is, I must be in control. That is the great sin that unleashed devastation on the world our desire to be in control instead of God. In the next few verses, Paul then goes on to give an explanation of what God might be doing. He says in verse 22, What if? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. It's hard to know what's going on there in those verses, but it seems that what Paul is doing is just offering a counter-explanation. What if? What if there's an explanation for God's choice that defies us? What if God knows more than we do? What if God can see things that we can't? What if God knows things that we don't? Isn't it possible that if God is God, 
that God might have reasons for doing things that we can't understand. Isn't that possible? Isn't it possible that God might be so far above us that we can't understand what he's doing? Why did Jerry respond and not Ed? The answer that Paul gives is that was God's plan. Why should you or I respond to the gospel and not someone else? Why should God show us mercy and not others? I think that's impossible for us to understand. But it ought to humble us to realise that God has shown us mercy if we belong to Jesus. The one thing that's certain is if we've received the mercy of God, it has nothing to do with us. It was a great gift of God. And we never need to be afraid of God's mercy because we know that if we come to him through Jesus, he will show us mercy. And we never need to be afraid of preaching the gospel because we know that if someone comes to Jesus, they'll receive the mercy of Jesus. But we'll also know that if they come to Christ, or if we come to Christ, it's because God called us according to his great purpose and plan. And as we take the gospel to people, we need to do that with the heart of God and the heart of Paul. With that deep desire that people would turn in repentance that people wouldn't be hardened in sin, but also trusting that God is in control and that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And we need to trust him, that he will make his words effective in our mouths and his words effective in the hearts of his people. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, these are hard things for us. Lord, they're hard for us because we don't understand. They're hard because we want so much to be in control of our future, our destiny, and in control not only of our destinies, Lord, but in control of the destinies of others. And yet you, O Lord, are God. And you reign over all things. Lord, help us to trust that you're in control and that you're doing good. That you work all things together for the good of those who love you and have been called according to your purpose. And Lord, help us also to understand your deep love and your great compassion. That you're not frivolous, but that you have gone to great lengths, that you've sent your own son to die in our place, to be cut off, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
Lord, help us to hold your love and your sovereignty in tension. That we might love as you have loved and trust you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.